Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, Then Sings My Soul, and Reclaiming the Lost Art of Biblical Meditation. Recently, Rob began a video teaching series entitled The 50 Final Events in World History, The Book of Revelation Demystified. You can use this self-paced video study for individual or group use. It includes downloadable visual aids for personal reference or for Bible teachers who want to teach this material to others. Visit robertjmorgan.com courses and use the coupon code podcast at checkout for a special listener's discount. And now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello to you. This is Robert Morgan, and I'm here at my family home in Roan Mountain and away from my regular studio microphone that I usually use. So I hope that the quality of this will do. I'm experimenting with a new kind of microphone that maybe I can use when I'm traveling. We are in a series of studies called Unstoppable on the subject of going through the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And today we're looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. And I think of this passage as what to do during in-between times. The apostles here were in-between the ascension of Christ, which had shocked them, and the day of Pentecost, which had not yet come. There was a 10-day window, a margin of these 10 days, between those two great events. I'm not sure why the Lord had um, a 10-day period marked out for them. Uh, It would have been wonderful if Jesus had ascended to heaven and immediately the Holy Spirit had come down on them. But there was some preparation that needed to be done. And it seems to me that sometimes we find ourselves in in in-between moments of life, times when we're sort of stuck or we are stalled or things are paused or something is not as uh, not happening as quickly as we want it to, and, uh, and we just have to wait. Well, what do we do during that time? What did the apostles do during that time? Well, this is the subject of our study. Let's go back, and I'm going to turn here to the book of Acts chapter 1, and if you're able to get to your copy of the Bible, then do the same. And I want to review very briefly the first 11 verses. This is a tremendous prologue. In fact, the first Um, several verses here are among the most wonderful verses ever written in terms of the way the books of the Bible open. Luke uh, is very elegant in the prologues that he gives us of both the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. And so he begins here by talking about how after Jesus rose from the dead, he presented himself alive to the apostles and gave them many convincing many infallible proofs that he was alive. And he kept appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and he was teaching them, giving them some post-resurrection teachings about the kingdom of God. He was telling them some things that would have been very hard for them to have understood before his death and resurrection. But after his death and resurrection, he began to explain to them why that was necessary, why the Messiah had to die and to rise from the dead. This is something that was inconceivable to them until after the event had occurred and they could look back on it. 
many things we can only understand after they occur, and we look back on them with divine explanations. And then it says in verse 4 that on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. For you have heard me speak about it. For John baptized with water, but in a few days... He didn't say 10 days or 11 days. He didn't tell them exactly the number of days, but he said in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And verse 6, they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now that he had died and risen again, now that he had provided atonement for the world, was he going to immediately set up his political visible, geographical, messianic kingdom centered in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses all over the world. And then it says in verse 9, after he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, according to Luke chapter 24, the same author, we learn that this took place near Bethany. Luke 24, in fact, let's just turn over there and let me show it to you. Luke chapter 24, the last chapter of Luke's gospel, the same writer says in verse 50, when he had led them out into the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So Bethany would have been near the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's about maybe two miles from uh, the downtown area, the Temple Mount area, of the Mount of Olives. It's not exactly across the Kidron Valley from the temple. We go up on the Mount of Olives when we visit Jerusalem, and you can look over across the Kidron Valley and see the city of Jerusalem, and there's some churches there commemorating the ascension of Christ. But apparently Jesus went a little out of town, closer to the area where today you can visit Lazarus's tomb, and it's a village. Um, they're an Arab village. It's not very easy to get into right now because of political uh, involvements. Uh, But apparently it was into this area that Jesus led them, and he blessed them, and he lifted up his hands in blessing, and then his whole body lifted up, and he disappeared into the sky, and they were stunned. They didn't really expect this. So they were gazing up into the sky, and going back to Acts chapter 1, suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee. They said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. He disappeared from the Mount of Olives, and he will return to the Mount of Olives. He disappeared into the clouds, and he will return in the clouds. He disappeared physically and bodily. He ascended up into heaven geographically. He's going to come back down in the same way, the same Jesus, this same Jesus will come, and he will come in his own 
timing at the moment of his return to this earth. And Zechariah tells us his feet will again touch down on the Mount of Olives. So all of this is that dramatic uh, first half of the book of Acts chapter 1. But what do you do now if you're the apostles? I mean, it's hard when someone leaves you and you have to adjust to a new reality. You feel in between. Frankly, I feel that way. My wife, Katrina, passed away back in November, and I haven't adjusted to that yet. I feel like I'm caught in between. It's uh, very difficult to transition through those times and get to another stage in life. And it could be that right now you're between jobs, or right now you're between relationships. Right now things are paused in some way. Right now you're waiting in some way. And these are just moments in life when we have to know what to do during the in-between times. Well, that brings us to the last half of Acts chapter 1. And what do we do in the in-between times of life? Well, the disciples here did three things. Let's look at verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. Now, this phrase, a Sabbath day's walk from the city, has given me a little bit of trouble because if Jesus ascended in the vicinity of Bethany, which Luke's gospel tells us happened, then that's more than a Sabbath day's walk from the city of Jerusalem. But if they came from Bethany up to the Mount of Olives, and they just simply went then from the Mount of Olives into the city, then that would be a Sabbath day's walk. All this verse tells us is the Mount of Olives is about a Sabbath day's walk from the city of Jerusalem, which is about uh, two-thirds of a mile or so. So the statement as it's given here is true. And it says, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Now notice that word, staying. I just want to put a little emphasis there. They were staying in this upper room. Now, what room was it? We aren't exactly sure. In traditional uh, Christianity, uh, there is a room in the area of Jerusalem that is today called Mount Zion, and this room is called the Cynical from the Latin word to dine. And when I went to Israel the first time in 1976, they took us to this room and they said, this is the upper room where Jesus observed his last supper. And this is the very place where the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost, the same upper room. And I remember I was a college student and I was transfixed because the thought of being in that room, the very room where Jesus had the last supper, the very place where the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost overwhelmed me. I thought, oh my goodness, and I tried to stand there and memorize every element of the arch, arches and the room, and, and I felt it, this must be the holiest site in the world. And it was only later that I learned that that is simply a traditional site. No one knows if it's truly the upper room, and in fact, the building itself wasn't there in the first century. It was built by the Crusaders, and I became very cynical about this place that is called Cynical, C-E-N-A-C-L-E, Cynical, the traditional upper room. Uh, just below that, by the way, is a tomb they also say is the tomb of David, 
but that cannot be verified. So in this one house on Mount Zion, which dates from Crusader days, and the first floor there is the purported Tomb of David, and on the second floor there is the commemorative site of the Last Supper and the Day of Pentecost events. But I never take groups there now because, uh, well, I became cynical about it when I realized it wasn't actually the right room and it may not have been on the right location. I think probably, this is just my opinion and I can't uh, prove it, but we know that just to the west of the Temple Mount was a very wealthy residential section of town in the days of our Lord. In fact, some of the buildings that were burned down by the Romans uh, and which are now under ruins have been excavated and you can go underneath the current day street of the city and you can see these ruins. One is called the Burnt House and these were very fine residential units. And I tend to think that this was where the upper room was. There was some wealthy person there and they had a very large house and the upper room was probably didn't have any walls in it the way the lower house would have had and so it was wide open and can accommodate a crowd and this is where Jesus and his disciples met and the disciples went back there um, for the uh, day of Pentecost. Now we have another hint in the book of Acts chapter 12. We don't know if this is exactly the same place or not but when Peter was released miraculously from prison, it says in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So it's very possible that the upper room belonged to Mary, whose mother was John Mark. And there are some reasons why I think this is true that I don't want to go into. We know that Mark's uncle, Barnabas, was very wealthy. Uh, Mark is the one who wrote the second gospel and who became a very close associate with Peter. So uh, enough of all of this. I'm just saying that this upper room was apparently a very uh, wonderful house by a wealthy person who was sympathetic to the Lord Jesus or who was a believer. And Jesus uh, knew them. Those connections were there. He would stay with them and this home was available, and it was big enough to accommodate the 120 that we said were here. Now, Luke's gospel, you may remember, also tells us that they didn't stay continuously in this upper room. They were also going to the temple and worshiping. So they were going back and forth. We're told that there were 120. I'll give you that in a moment. And after the ascension, they were in between the day of ascension and the day of Pentecost, and they were trying to orient themselves and, and figure out what to do next, and they would live in that upper room, and this would have been in the month of May, probably, so it would have been uh, warm enough to sleep out on the roof and out in the courtyards and, and maybe outside of the city and come into the house uh, I'm not sure how everybody was fed. I'm not sure about the sanitation arrangements. You know, I'm sort of curious as to what that would have looked like and felt like to have been a part of this group of 120 in this upper room. But they were coming and going to and from the temple, which again makes me think that maybe this house was not very far from the temple. It could have been in that wealthy residential uh, section just west of the temple in Jerusalem, which was later destroyed by the Romans. So it says 
and verse 13, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying, and those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. This is the 11 surviving apostles. Judas, of course, had killed himself, but now we have the 11 apostles, and it says in verse 11, they all joined together constantly in prayer. So the first key word here is staying. These people stayed together. They stayed in the same house, in the same vicinity. They went back and forth in groups to the temple. They were fellowshipping. They were supporting one another. And when we are in in between times in life, when we're a little disoriented, when we've lost someone, for example, that we love, when we're in between points in life, Uh, where we have routines and orientations, when we are in between jobs or in between relationships, uh, then we need a group of people around us that will support us. That's no time to go off by ourselves and be very much alone. I remember when Katrina was, uh, during the last days of her life, uh, just about every member of my family moved into our house. They slept on our mattresses. They were in and out of her room all the time and they were such a support to me. Uh, When traumatic things happen, we need one another. Uh, When we are waiting and frustrated or, or eager and full of anticipation, but things aren't unfolding yet, then we need one another. We need the support of one another. And so they were waiting together, staying together, but then they were also praying together. It says there in verse uh, 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So this is very wonderful. Here you have not only the 12 apostles and presumably, or the 11 surviving apostles, and presumably some of them were married and they had children. Uh, You had others who had been following Jesus from the very beginning, disciples that aren't necessarily mentioned by name in the Gospels, but they were following him. Uh, You also have a group of women, and these are mentioned, uh, some of them, in the book of Luke chapter 8. Luke is very good about making sure that women and the role of women are placed highly in the accounts of the gospel. And you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. We last saw her at the cross, sadly gazing at her dying son, but now she knows he is alive. And I wonder if he met with her personally after the resurrection. We aren't told one way or the other, but surely he probably did. And then his brother's there. Uh, And we know one of them, James, uh, Jesus certainly met with. So I think it's possible that Jesus met with his family. His brothers had not believed on him, but now they were believing in him. So something dramatic had happened, and his uh, mother and his brothers are there with the disciples, with other disciples whose names we don't know, maybe with children and young people. It's almost certain that there was a great intergenerational group here, and they were praying together. They had been with Jesus in his flesh, and they had talked to them, and they had communicated with them, and now he had gone up to heaven, but they could still talk with him and still communicate with him. And so can we. Now, I wonder what they were praying for. I suppose they were praying that the Lord Jesus would send down the Holy Spirit as he had promised.
Lord, send your spirit and your timing. Lord, give us the spirit. And I believe that this is something that we can pray for. I don't know if you have ever prayed for the Holy Spirit, but I've begun praying, Lord, give me a fresh anointing with the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe, as we have talked about, that the moment you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit who comes to live within you. But we're also told to be filled with the Spirit. So, presumably, we can say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Jesus said, and Luke uh, put it this way in his gospel, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? There's a great old hymn that says, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. Wean it from earth, the wall its pulses move. Stoop to my weakness, mighty as thou art, and help me love thee as I ought to love. We sometimes pray in another old hymn, Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only always living in me. And during the in-between phases, when we have to reorient our lives or get used to a new routine, this is a great time for us to pray, Lord, give me a new experience with the Holy Spirit, a new anointing with the Holy Spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Do something new in my life by your Holy Spirit today. So they were staying together. They were praying, and then thirdly, they were weighing a very great decision. Look at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and that's where we get that number, and he said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David. Now, there you have something very important about how we got the scriptures. It was the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that they were waiting for, the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised them, is the same person of the Trinity that inspired the writers of the scripture. Peter would later say that the writers of the Bible were born along, carried along by the Holy Spirit as they recorded their words. This is why we say the Bible is inspired and infallible and absolutely trustworthy. This is why we say the Bible is written both every word of it by a human being, but every word of it guided by the Holy Spirit. So Peter said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared our ministry. Now, there's a parenthesis here. With this payment he received for his wickedness, Judas uh, bought a field and he fell headlong. His body burst open and all of his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they call that field in their language a keldama, which is the field of blood. Luke inserts this parenthetically. But Matthew says it a little bit differently. Matthew says that he had this 30 pieces of silver that Judas did, and he threw it back into the temple at the priest. He was full of remorse. He went out and hung himself, and the priest used the money to go and to buy a field, which became a place of burial for those who um, uh, had nowhere else to be buried. And um, But these two 
accounts are easy to reconcile. Apparently, uh, this field was purchased. Judas went there. He hung himself. His body bloated. And when he was uh, untied or when the rope was cut or when the rope broke, then his body fell. And we have this rather uh, loathsome description of all of his intestines spilling out. Um, and there wouldn't have been a contradiction because Luke says everybody knew all of this. This was very widely known. So people would have said, oh, yes, we know exactly the sequence in it in which it happened. Uh, so this was the sad end of Judas. For, said Peter in verse 20, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted and let there be no one to dwell in it. Now, Peter here is going back to the book of Psalms, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit through David, to give us a prophetic word to tell us that what happened to Judas was not unexpected to God, that what happened when Jesus was betrayed had been foretold from the very beginning. And if you go back to Psalm 69, I'll turn there very briefly, Psalm number 69, then we have a passage that sounds quite messianic. It sounds as though the writer here is talking about what happened to Jesus. Psalm number 69. So if you'll look at um, verse number 19, the writer says, You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and help and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. This sounds like the scene from the cross. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. May their, eye, heart, uh, may, may their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let, no one, uh, let there be no one to dwell in their tents. So Peter took this, and maybe Jesus had pointed this out to Peter during these 40 days um, as a prophecy that the Lord Jesus would be scorned, he would be given vinegar to drink, uh, he would be abandoned, uh, but the one responsible for it, uh, his place would be deserted and no one could dwell in it again. So that was from Psalm 69. And now he's going to quote from Psalm 109, let another take his place of leadership. I'll not take time to look at that, but it's the same sort of context if you want to look at Psalm 109, verse 8. So Peter here is very burdened that Judas be replaced and that the number of apostles once again be 12. So in verse 21, he says, It is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. So there had been more than 12 people who had been a part of the Lord's ministry from the days of John the Baptist, and more than 12 people, evidently, who had seen the ascension. There was a group of people, a larger group than the 12. The 12 had been chosen out of this group, but Jesus had a larger group 
of disciples than just these 12. And Peter said, another one of the people who have been a part of the band of Jesus from the moment of John's baptism until the ascension should take the place of Judas. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then they cast lots. This is the last time that lots are cast in the Bible, because, of course, after this, the Holy Spirit is going to come to guide us with all wisdom. But in this case, the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So I just have one last question here. Why was Peter so burdened, so concerned, that there be 12 apostles? Some people say Peter acted presumptuously here that Paul was actually supposed to be the 12th apostle, that Paul was the one who was uh, uh, chosen to replace Judas. But no, I don't think so. Uh, I think that Peter here knew exactly what he was doing, and I think he was probably acting on some instructions that Jesus gave during the 40 days uh, between the resurrection and the ascension. Because 12 in the Bible is the number of completeness. There are 12 months that complete a year. And interestingly, this is not only true on earth, but it's going to be true in New Jerusalem. We're told in the book of Revelation chapter 22 that the tree of life is going to bear 12 rotations of fruit, monthly fruit, 12 um, crops of fruit every month for the healing of the nations. And uh, Jesus talked about there's 12 hours of sunlight in which uh, somebody can get something done, and 12 hours of darkness, which makes up a 24-hour day. Uh, Jesus spoke for the first time uh, in terms of his recorded words when he was 12 years old. We're told that heaven is going to be 12,000 stadia in length and width and height. Um, and so, uh, so the number of 12 in the Bible, uh, 12 completes a year, it completes a day, it completes a night, it shows the completed city of New Jerusalem. So now think about this. The church of Jesus Christ that will be in New Jerusalem forever and ever is made up of both the Jewish redeemed channel of redemption that God the Father developed in the Old Testament and the Jews of all of the ages represented by the 12 patriarchs and the church which is represented by the 12 apostles. Jacob had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. God built a nation made up of 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus built a church on the foundation of the 12 apostles. And so you put 12 and 12 together and you have 24. Now look with me at the book of Revelation and chapter number 4. Let's go over and look at Revelation and chapter number 4. I'm taking a moment to turn there, so you can, if you have your Bible, do the same. Revelation and chapter number 4, this great worship service in heaven. And it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and 
And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone around like an emerald encircled the throne, and surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were the twenty-four elders. Now, who are these twenty-four elders? Well, I believe, and I teach this in my course, The 50 Final Events in World History, I believe that this represents the redeemed of all of the ages, which is symbolized by the 12 patriarchs of Israel and the 12 apostles of the church. And go over to chapter 21 as we close out. The book of Revelation and chapter 21. And look at this. Talking about the great and glorious city, the city of New Jerusalem, in verse number 11, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper as clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, and there were 12 gates on the east and 12 on the north and 12 on the south and 12 on the west, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there had to be a 12th apostle, because the city of New Jerusalem has 12 gates and 12 foundations, and it represents all of the redeemed of Israel who have come through the channel of Israel and through the channel of the church to make up the great eternal city of God. So, here we come back to our original question. We should never lose time when we are in between, when we feel like we're in transition, when something has happened but something else hasn't, and we feel like we're in this uh, strange uh, in-between time. What should we do? We should stay and pray and weigh. Stay close to those who can support you. And pray for God to give you a new, outstanding dose, anointing, empowering by the Holy Spirit. And weigh the immediate decisions that you need with an open Bible before you, trusting God to guide you. And prepare as best you can for what God has for you to do next. And what comes next is the day of Pentecost. And we'll look at that next week. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast and our study through the book of Acts. This is Robert J. Morgan. This podcast, Unstoppable, was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media. It was edited by Elijah Rowe, and music is by my friend Jordan Davis. For more information about all of our resources, please check out my website, robertjmorgan.com, and may the Lord bless you richly until we meet again.